podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, myself and Michael McMullen do another little niche podcast. We reminisce about tournaments that were once on the calendar and no longer are. So there'll be tournaments that many of you will remember. There might be a couple you've never heard of. But uh, join us now as we turn back time. Well, we're going to start with the World Doubles. Um, It's one of those tournaments I think everyone sort of remembers more fondly than they actually enjoyed watching at the time, the doubles. It's not... uh, Because snooker's an individual game, we know Mm. that. But the fascination for me was always who would play with each other. Because it changed year by year for a lot of players. It did a bit, yeah. Dennis Taylor played with Terry Griffith some of the years, and then in the last year, uh, actually played with Cliff Thorburn. And they got to the final. Um, I think they were 6-0 up in the final and ended up losing it. But he'd never done... I don't think he'd done all that well with Terry. I certainly don't think they've been in a final. Um, It was funny, I always thought that Jimmy White and Tony Mayo never played together. Because they'd kind of grown up together. Mm. And uh, maybe Barry decided it would be a bit too much of a risk to have the two of them hanging out together for the week. I don't (laughs) know. But um, but Mayo played with uh, Steve Davis, of course. And they won it four times, was Mm. it? One of those, you might remember this, there was a TV strike. So it wasn't shown on television. No. And I think it was Barry had told Steve and Tony, uh, whichever one of you pots the winning ball, do a big celebration. Because this was in the days when there'd be a photo in all the papers the next day. So I think when Tony Mio potted the winning ball, he sort of threw himself on the ground as if there'd been some big dramatic finish. That was the paper. Uh, the paper all the papers had that picture the next day. It had actually been 12-5, I think, in the final. <laughs> so uh, never wanted to miss a marketing chance. But it, it always seemed a bit sort of... Um, Stop, start. No mm. one ever got any rhythm going, did they? Mm. No. But also, I think in terms of the pairings, I mean, Davis and Mayo is a good example, and maybe it's why Griffiths and Taylor didn't do that well together. You really want to play with someone who doesn't play your game, don't you? Because you mm. want to, sort of the two sides of it. You want an attacking player and a more methodical player. Mio was quite methodical. People sort of forget this. He, he wasn't necessarily a sort of flash player. Obviously, Davis, you know, you, you suspect Davis probably could have won it with anyone at that time. Mm. But I think Mio was an important... Uh, partner for him, and actually the same with Hendry and Hallett. You know, they're sort of two different types of players uh, who, who ended up winning the last one, and they won the the, the doubles at the, at the World Masters as well. Mark, well. I mean, people have always said, "I'll oh, bring it back," and it's never kind of come back because they never got great figures. Actually, yeah. ITV it was their fourth tour at ITV, and it was always the sort of weakest. But Mark Williams had the idea that um, you should bring it back, but you should actually draw the pairs out of a hat. So basically, you don't choose who you play with. It's drawn out of a hat. And you can imagine some of the pairings there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I would actually... I, I wouldn't complain at all if some sort of, you know, antics were pulled to ensure that players who actively didn't like mm. each other had to play together, you know? So um, the, the thing about it was, you, you know, you had to wait so long for a visit sometimes to the table, so you couldn't get any rhythm going. Also, you knew you were playing for someone else who was sitting a few feet away, and they were playing for pretty big money at the time. Mm. So I think that stopped people getting into the rhythm of it, and then it finished after 1987. It was was all right. It was of its time, and, of course, the players were such big stars, and, you know, were so used to... People were so used to seeing them in, you know, big, high-profile individual competitions that it was a real novelty to see them, you know, playing with each other. problem with novelties is they only last a certain amount of time. And yeah, and also the players, I don't know, the players did not take it seriously, understandably, as, um, as big ranking events, because mm. it, it wasn't as serious. But, of course, it was replaced by the World Match Play, mm. uh, which uh, was a completely different event. It was kind of, you look back at it, it's like a sort of cross between the Masters and the World Championship, yeah. because the, there were long matches, there were best of 17s, the final was best of 35. I mean, imagine now having an invitation event. Best of 35. And it's almost as if, as Barry Hearn promoted it inevitably, it's almost as if he's trying to sort of almost fool people into thinking this is the World Championship. Well, Frank Warren, the boxing promoter, he was involved in it as well, wasn't he? Certainly early on. I remember him saying, 
oh, you know, the players are going to regard this as the world championship. Now, why on earth would you regard that <laughs> when you've as already bigger? got one? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that, you know, there was no reason, even if you were to compare them directly, there was no way at all in which it was in any way superior. Once people had got past that and the tournament just went ahead, I thought it was a great tournament. Mm. Long matches, as you say. Also, it wasn't the top 12 in the rankings. It was the 12 players who had earned the most points the previous season. Yeah. So it was generally foreign players. It was just off the back of the UK when there were so many great matches, uh, long, long matches as well. So you basically had two tournaments of long matches in the space of three weeks uh, in the lead up to Christmas, which was fantastic. You mentioned those 35 frame finals, and actually all three of them were very one-sided, because the first and last year it was best of 17, but 89 they had white against Parrot, John was 8-5 up, won one more frame, so Jimmy won 18-9. Jimmy won similar margin next year against Stephen Hendry, don't remember exactly what it was. <coughs> and then Gary Wilkinson, of course, won it in 91, mm. being Steve Davis, uh, over 35 frames in what became a very tactical final. Now, what an achievement that was, yeah. you know, to, to do that at that time. But the fact that none of those 35-frame finals produced any great drama or any great comeback or anything, uh, had even one of them done so, the match play might really have established mm. itself, actually. Uh, but then, of course, 92, they went back to 17-frame final anyway, and then ITV stopped, stopped uh, showing snooker for, for a number of years after that. But the match play was actually, you know, it became one of the highlights of the season in some respects. But it, it illustrates actually the danger of longer matches. You know, a lot of people maybe listening now don't like the best of sevens and so on, but long matches can fizzle out. But, but the other interesting thing is it shows you, you know, take away the pressure of the Crucible and the World Championship. Jimmy could beat John Parrott over two days. He could beat Stephen Hendry. Yeah. over two days it was just you know we know what happened at the Crucible and yeah. that's got its own unique reasons um, yeah it, like I say it, it was uh, it was interesting that that replaced the doubles because you couldn't get two more different tournaments really um, and it's a shame in a way like I think you need sort of tournaments like the match play these big invitational events just show, showcasing the top players because we have a lot of tournaments now where you see sort of cast of thousands and that's great you know for, in its own way but I think you need the other side that's why the Champion of Champions works I think because people watch it and they know it's just for winners. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the match play was... was uh, they, they actually tried to revive it. It was meant to be on in Qatar the following season, but it never happened. And then there was talk ten years later, I think Barry had actually done a deal mm. with Sky to bring it back, but for some reason it never happened. But, I mean, the world match play in itself, I suppose, is, is just a title, but, you know, you do miss having events like that where yeah. all the matches are, are long distance, and it would be great to see one coming back in the mm. future. If they can find any room in the calendar. Well, indeed. Let's uh, go on to, uh, well, your part of the world, the Irish Masters. Yeah. I mean, this was one of the highlights of the season, really, because it was always sort of pre-world championship. Goffs was an incredible venue, uh, not a sporting venue, or certainly not a snooker venue, but they turned it into one every year, and it became a really established part of the circuit for, for many years. It did, and I mean, it was absolutely massive in Ireland, because, you know, as I always said this, it was the only event in any sport in which all of the world's very best players came to mm. Ireland. I mean, you had things like the Irish Open Golf, got a good feel, but you never had all of the world's best players in it. You did with the Irish Master Snooker pretty much every year. Um, you know, you should just be packed out for every session. It's the only venue I know of uh, where they sold standing tickets. Mm. And, uh, you know, there'd be like two levels of balconies above all the seats, mm. with, you know, just full of people standing there. It created an absolutely fantastic atmosphere. The media coverage of it always was enormous. Benson and Hedges put so much money into it. They used to run ads promoting it on RT1 at like 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. I mean, you know, huge money going into uh, to promoting the whole thing. And uh, the TV coverage was, you know, just blanket. I mean, they'd have like three or four programmes a day. Um, and, of course, it was always the last event before the World Championship in its heyday, which created a huge amount of, of interest in it. You, you, you were there, weren't you, in the last yeah. year, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was incredible, uh, just arena, it was a real cockpit arena. Um, and, 
and you also sort of you did feel the history because it's like you know now we have the Crucible really is the only venue that has got the history because it's been there forever. The UK's moved, the Masters have moved, and so on. But when you said Goffs, people knew what you meant, and yeah. it did when it moved. It moved to the City West in, Hotel in Dublin. It lost something, definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, a lot of people, people who maybe weren't <coughs> particular snooker fans, used to just refer to the tournament as golfs mm. rather than the Irish Masters. But, yeah, then it became a ranking event, and um, there was talk um, of it continuing after 2005 was the last one because, you know, bizarrely, it went from being sponsored by Benson yeah. and Hedges to being backed <laughs> by uh, the Department of Health yeah. anti-smoking campaign. So after 25 years using it to persuade yeah. people to smoke a particular brand, now it's being used to persuade them not to smoke at all. Mm. In the last year, actually, the sponsorship transferred over to Fulcher Ireland, which is effectively the Irish Tourist Board. And I remember speaking to Kevin Norton. He said the government weren't going to be sponsoring it in 2006, but he was hopeful it would be on. Now, of course, WPBSA had bought it over by then. Mm. I think they paid £400,000 for it to turn it into a ranking event to kind of pad out the calendar a bit because there were so few tournaments. And yet, bizarrely, within three years, the tournament disappeared on the grounds that there was no room for it in the calendar (laughs) because I think they gave the dates to China. And the calendar hadn't become any less sparse in the meantime. Mm. So that was a bit of a farcical way for it all to end. But... um, some fantastic years at the Irish Masters. I think it was 23 years at round four. And, Davis uh, won it yeah. eight times, was it? He won it eight times, yeah. yeah. And he didn't even play in it every year, yeah. which was funny because he won it, the first two times he won it, 83 and 84, he went on both times to then win the World Championship. Then he lost his world title in 85, and then surprisingly decided the best way to prepare for the world in 86, because he was so determined to win it back, was not to play in the Irish Masters. Mm. And it didn't work, actually, um, because he obviously lost in the final that year to Joe Johnson. Then he came back... The next two years won the Irish Masters again, and again both times won the, uh, won the World Championship on the back of it. So yeah, he, he absolutely dominated the event. I think there was something like an 11-year, 12-year period in which he only lost there three times. He was also in a load of finals, and of course it was probably the highlight of Darren Morgan's career, wasn't it? Because yes. it's the only major title he won yeah. in a nine-hour final against <laughs> Steve. <laughs> but also the, the commentary interested me, because Ray McAnally, uh, oh, yeah. who uh, was a very well-known actor... Somehow ended up commentating on it. Which yeah, I don't know why, but <laughs> well, I mean, it was it, you know, it was the 1970s. Yeah. RTE had to come up with you know snooker commentators for the first time. I mean, you know, yes. who, 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 what, what was the but, mar- it like, but it would be like literally, it would be like getting Michael Caine to, on on the BBC. Yeah. We'd all listen to that. Well, we would, yeah. but it just seems an odd choice. Yeah, no, and then because his son Angus then, yeah. then took over. Didn't yeah, he? well, he was a decent player, Angus. Yeah. Actually, he did it for a number of years and mm. almost became their their lead man. I think more and more towards the end. They were using uh, British commentators. Mark Wildman used to come over. Um, one or two others as well. Would Rex maybe did he do a year? Probably. Yeah. John Pullman certainly Terry, did actually. Yeah. Uh, there was a chap, John Skehan. Mm. I think he was an actor as well. He was. He had a fantastic voice. I'm not sure how much he knew about snooker, mm. but uh, yeah, I mean, you could turn on the commentary and almost anyone could end up uh, mm. end up doing it. Well, well, that wasn't true of the Irish Open because yeah. it wasn't on TV. Yeah. This, now this was another sort of desperate uh, move by, by 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 an ailing governing body to just get a tournament on, and uh, the Irish Open '98 it was. Yeah. Um, actually, the calendar was busier then than people remember, yeah. but it was just sort of pre-Christmas. It was in a basketball arena mm. in in Dublin, in a suburb of Dublin. Um, and the tournament itself was, was nothing wrong with the tournament. The standard of the play was great. Mark Williams won it, but it was a bit chaotic. There was one day where they couldn't play because there was a pre-booked charity event they had to get all the tables out. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you remember, I remember being at the Grand Prix in late October. The Irish Open was due to be on the week before Christmas. They still didn't have a venue, mm. and they didn't even have any potential venues for it. So that it was very short notice that they mm. got it. And you could say they did well to get it on at all at that short notice. But yeah, of course, we had. Uh, 
they, they ran it off very quickly. They played the entire last 32 on the first day, then the entire last 16 the next day, then the quarterfinals. And then, as you say, I mean, on the Friday they had to uh, they had to just move out of the venue, and we all had uh, we all had a day off uh, in Dublin a week before Christmas. Um, but they, again, I mean, that tournament actually did all right for what it was because it was huge media coverage. I remember because Ken Doherty was used as the big selling point; he'd won the world championship the year before, and so the media actually got quite interested in it. Mm. I remember one newspaper asking me for forty paragraphs, <laughs> and that was on the day of the first round. Mm. Um, and the crowds actually were, were reasonably yeah. decent as, as, as well, um, particularly you know because you know like Jimmy were playing in it. Uh, but the, there were some chaotic moments. I remember with sort of. Uh, Crowds kind of rushing forward at the end of matches. There was something, wasn't there, with Peter Ebden in the uh, kind of give it back to the crowd. Yeah, well, they were, quite, Jimmy. they were quite hostile towards him, and he kind of was a little bit hostile towards them. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I don't think he would help himself. Drago beat Hendry, which led to the whole shrewd thing, which we won't revisit again. Yeah, but um, uh, course, and that was the other thing, because the pre- I mean, like you say, the press contingent was really big, but the press room had to double up with the tour office. And it was a tiny room. It was the tiniest yeah. room ever. And, and just, I mean, just everyone was just, I mean, now it wouldn't matter because there'd be no one to go. But back then, you know, it was kind of, you, there was no room. Yeah. Well, absolutely. <laughs> it was actually, it was the first ranking tournament in Ireland because the Irish mm. Masters didn't become a ranking event until a few weeks later. And I remember talking to Gordon Regan, who was the tournament yeah. director afterwards, and he was very hopeful it would be on again the next year, that it might even be on TV. I don't really know why it wasn't on the following year, but... Um, so yeah, I mean it was it was a one-off event. One, one of those things that you know people who who were there certainly remember it as a as a unique week. I mean, and that that was I mean, it was the first time, maybe ever, that a, a ranking event, a full. I know there had been a, a strong tournament with a kind of a reduced field and reduced prize money, but I think it was the first time there had been a um, full-scale ranking event that hadn't been on television, except for that professional players tournament, which was actually designed to be untelevised, mm. but uh, no, it was a good week, and uh, that, that actually kicked off a lot of things for Mark Williams, yeah, yeah, yeah. he'd won the Masters earlier in the year, uh, but then hadn't done so well in between, but then once he won that Irish Open, he went on that brilliant run for the next few years that took him to world number one. Yeah, he started to sort of be in every final, basically, yeah. and, and like you say, in the, sort of 18 months later, won the World Championship. Well, staying in Ireland, this is a tour, I suspect a lot of people listening won't even know happened, the Kilkenny Masters, oh, which yeah. uh, 10 years ago... Yeah. Um, Explain the background to it and the, the tournament itself, because it had a great field. It had a brilliant field. Well, they called it, they played it for the Paul Hunter Trophy, and of mm. course, Paul had only died about six months earlier, mm. so Ronnie was there, John Higgins, Stephen Hendry. I mean, that's a great mm. field to start yeah. with. Yeah. Ken Doherty, Graham Dott, who was world champion at the time. And I think it was promoted by some people who were very big on running exhibitions, mm. and they decided to have this tournament and to have it in Kilkenny, which was a really you know, interesting idea because Davy Morris, who was the big Irish prospect at that time, he was from Kilkenny, so they decided to have it in his home city in the Ormond Hotel. Uh, it was a pretty good venue, very good field. Ronnie actually won the tournament, but it was just beset by, by mishaps from start to finish. And uh, I mean, the most famous one, obviously, was the fact they announced there would be a car for a 147. <laughs> yeah, parked out the front. Yeah, well, that was the thing. <laughs> now, I had heard a couple of days, I was press officer for the week and MC, and I'd heard a couple of days before the tournament, no, there isn't actually going to be a car. So I was very surprised mm. to arrive at the venue and find the car, as you say, on display outside. And then you know someone will make a maximum. Well, absolutely. And even more so when I subsequently learned that the players hadn't been told mm. that the prize right. wasn't an offer anymore. So what happens? Saturday afternoon, quarterfinal, Joe Swell against Ronnie O'Sullivan, 4 all, raucous, full crowd. You should look at the clip, actually. It's, it's on YouTube. Ronnie makes a 1-4-7 in the deciding frame, comes into the press room, buzzing. Now, he didn't need the car mm. by any means. It wasn't even a particularly fancy car. But I think he just loved the buzz and the rush of uh, making a 1-4-7 and winning a car. Now, the tournament 
promoters, not surprisingly, were nowhere to be seen. <laughs> so I was the only person in any official capacity there, so I had the pleasure of informing them, well, Romy, actually, no car will be forthcoming. And actually, do you know what? I think um, one of the reasons he didn't kick off about it was because it was the Paul Hunter Trophy, mm. and it would have seemed very inappropriate. And to be fair, he got over it and got on with it and, and won the tournament. But the other side of it as well, I remember the semi-finals... Ronnie then played John Higgins, and it was unusual because there were two tables. They were in different rooms on different floors of the hotel. So I'd do the introductions in one room and then run upstairs to the other room. So I went upstairs after doing the introductions for Higgins and O'Sullivan to do the introductions on Barry Hawkins and Fergal O'Brien. I start doing them. I'm in the middle of giving one of the players this big build-up, and the referee taps me on the shoulder and tells me he's forgotten his gloves. <laughs> now, what can you say? You have to say, well, okay, well, I mean, you can't referee the match without your gloves. The thing about it was, Fergal's manager, a chap called Martin, was sitting in the crowd, and I knew he wasn't happy because the table, and this again summed up the chaos of it, hadn't been brushed in Ireland before <laughs> the start of play. So he actually got up out of the crowd while the referee was off getting his gloves, and I'm standing there in the middle of the arena, uh, took all the balls off the table, <laughs> brushed it down, set the balls all back up again, and went and sat back in the seat. But, it, it, I mean, that was, you talk about the Irish Open being a unique event. Kilkenny really, really was, because, as you say, a lot of people weren't even aware it was on. Uh, but they got really good crowds for it, and actually, I think had it not been for the fact that the country's economy collapsed a few months later, mm. it may very well have taken place again the next year. But ten years ago now, and um, almost to the day, really, since that happened. We should, I mean, let, you know, the snooker's one thing, but let, let's talk about uh, the Elvis impersonator. Oh, who, yeah. who turned up this guy who, I don't know, well, they always, I think he was Builders of Ireland's leading Elvis impersonator. Mm. Whether that's a strict true, I don't know, but... But he came, he'd written a song for Ronnie O'Sullivan, not an Elvis song as it turned out, an Elton John, yeah. he wrote Rocket Man, which I yeah. suppose is an obvious choice, yeah. and came into the press room and he had it on a CD, is my memory, but sort of sang along over the top of it, and I genuinely just thought Ronnie would either run from the room laughing or just sort of back away slowly. He loved it. <laughs> he absolutely loved it. Honestly, I mean this quite honestly. I've been in the arena for all five of Ronnie's world titles. Mm. I never saw a smile on his face yeah. for any of those as big as... You know, someone had written a song about yeah. him. You know, this, he had, uh, yeah, he'd basically taken the words of Rocket Man and adapted them. I mean, any song that includes the words pot success rate in its lyrics. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's got to be worth a listen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was just a, an extraordinary week. It, it was like, you know, a lifetime of, you know, bizarre, chaotic moments all happening in the space of what was actually a, a three-day event. What a shame it never happened again. Absolutely. Well, uh, if you were a snooker fan of the 80s, you'll recall all the big BBC events. Of course, they still show three now at the Grand Prix, but also the World Team Cup, which was a little, a bit like the doubles, really. It was a little sort of diversion from, yeah. from the hurly-burly of the ranking events. And uh, the World Cup has sort of come back now, but in those days, they were three-man teams, and they played best of nine matches in the sort of halcyon days of it. They played best of nine matches, so you'd play two frames at a time, and eventually, if you needed a decider, two players would would go up against each other. And again, it was uh, it was kind of interesting to see the teams because yeah. you're used to these guys being rivals. All of a sudden, they're playing together. But also, they they had there were very specific teams that you knew would be successful. So like Wales, you had Reard and Mountjoy Griffiths. So there's a three great players together. Uh, the same with the the All Irish team, uh, Taylor Higgins. Eugene Hughes, England would always have a good team. Yeah. Canada, of course, yeah. Fulburn, Stevens, and Werbeneck. Um, obviously, some of the other countries struggled, so they had this sort of rest of the world, which was kind of a bit dis disparate. Although they got to the final, didn't they? Well, Silvino, Dino Kane, and Tony Drago. Yeah, the reason they had that was because they couldn't have a South Africa team. Right. Um, that was the reason, I think, because you know there was apartheid at the mm. time. South Africa was one of the few countries that actually had three professionals. So they said, let's have rest of the world with the three highest-ranked players. 
um, from countries who don't have a team of their own. And when they did that, they realised it would actually be the same as the South African team, because they were all South Africans. So they had a rule, no country could have more than one player. So that was the team for a number of years, actually. Mm. And they lost on a respotted black, I think, didn't yeah. they, in the final to England, yeah. against England. The previous year, England had played Australia in the final. And now, Australia was massive at the time, uh, Australian TV, Australian pop stars. It was their 200th anniversary that year, 1988 as well. And uh, Australia had the team of Eddie Charlton, John Campbell and Warren King. I think that was their team every year, yeah, actually, it be, that, yeah, that it went yeah. on. I don't think it ever changed. They were 7-5 up in the final against England, whose team was Steve Davis, Jimmy White and Neil Folds, mm. the top three players in the world rankings. England came back to win 9-7. There's a picture, I don't know if you've ever seen it, of the Australian team sitting... Uh, in the Bournemouth International Centre afterwards, and honestly, they look like they've just heard that someone's died. <laughs> they were just so... I'd say Eddie would have took that badly. He would have done, yeah, yeah. He, he probably would have claimed it made him world champion. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that, was, that, that, that was one particular memory. The other thing as well that was a bit unfair, I thought, OK, maybe I'm a little bit biased here, but Ireland, of course, won it three years in a row. It made more sense... Instead of uh, what they used to have was the holders could nominate a B team to make up the numbers. It made more sense to actually make up the numbers by having Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland. But they chose to do it after Ireland's All-Ireland team had won it three years in a row. I think, you know, if that team of Higgins, Taylor and Hughes had won it three years in a row as they had, they should have been given the chance to defend it and then maybe break it up. As it was, having won it for the third time in 87, they were split up into Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland the next year and both got beaten in the first round. Um, the, the trouble with team events and individual sports, I'm sure you'll agree, is it's very hard to get the format right. Mm. And you know, if you had longer matches, you could end up with you know one player ending up not even getting to play at all. So it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and the BBC as well. The, towards the end, it was almost like you know they didn't really want it that much anymore because they were giving it not great slots. And also the other problem was it only lasted four days, yeah. so it never really had the chance to build much momentum. But it was like the doubles; it was of its time, a bit of a diversion, and. You know, well, it's come back in some form now, and of course there'll be uh, a variant of the uh, of the World Cup later this year in China. I think it's mainly now remembered for for the, <laughs> the fallout between Higgins and yeah. China, which uh, of course Dennis was the captain, Alex wasn't happy, well, wasn't happy, full stop, mm. and you know, threatened to kill him. I mean, that's just a fact he did, and of course was, was subsequently banned for it. It did come back in the nineties in in Thailand, and that was successful, oh, yeah. but it just, it just lost a lot of money. It's one of these things where. They had a lot of teams, a lot of loads of teams from various countries. They had reserves, actually. People had to fly in and, and be reserves. Scotland won it, the dream team, Henry, McManus and Higgins, but just lost a lot of money and, and sort of didn't reappear. And it's come back in various forms. Nations Cup, World Cup, uh, as you say, is on again. But um, That one in Thailand, incidentally, with, I mean, that was probably the best one, and not least because they had, um, I think they were like best of 17s, best yeah. of 19s towards yeah. the end, you know, which, uh, which worked really well. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was the World Cup. Well, of course, we're talking here nationalities, and there used to be national championships. There used to be Scottish Championship, Welsh Championship. They always played at the same time in various parts of the world, and they had sort of bits of regional TV. I mean, the Welsh yeah. Open, the Welsh Open's been going 25 years, but it was preceded by BBC Welsh showing the That's Welsh right, Championship. Yeah. and which was pretty competitive. You know, you had uh, Mountjoy, Reardon, Griffiths for years dominated, Darren Morgan towards the end of it. Um, but, uh, the, I mean, I lived in England, well, I still do, and uh, the English ch- Championship was never on TV as far as I know. I think it might have been on in one region. Maybe, yeah. so it was played in Ipswich, wasn't yeah. it? And so it would be the Anglia region. Yeah. I think they used to show some of it. Fairly sure the Irish Championship was never on television. I think the Scottish one might have yeah, been. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Somewhere along the way. The Welsh one, incidentally, I think they used to show it from the quarter-final stage onward. Right. Now, our colleague, Clive Everton, well, he was in the Welsh Championship quarter-finals mm. twice. Now, we've tried to establish a number oh. of times 
were his matches shown on television. I, I check YouTube every day. I've never seen. Yeah, him. yeah. So I mean, <laughs> even, even Clive doesn't seem no. uh, seem too sure of it. I think he played Terry in one of them, Terry yes. Griffiths, and Ray Reardon in another. Again, we keep saying this, don't we? It, it was sort of of its time mm. those national championships. I don't think it would really work now as, mm. as a thing. And but if you look back, speaking of YouTube, if you look back at old matches from the eighties uh, or whatever, very often you see it being referred to. Dennis Taylor coming to the table, the Irish champion, mm. um, and they played long matches as well. Again, I mean, I think. Uh, certainly in the English Championship, I think it was best of 17 mm. uh, through all the later rounds of it. So at the end of it, I suppose, was the WPBSA used to contribute £1,000 per entry to the prize fund. And when they decided that they wanted to put that money into other things, mm. that was basically the end of the National Championships. Uh, your Eurosport colleague, Mike Hallett, of course, is still the English professional yes. champion because yeah. it's not been played. The others have all come back in various guises. The Irish Championship came back for a few mm-hmm. years. Uh, the Scottish came back for one year, I think, didn't it? And John Higgins won it. Um, but again, there was so much variety at that time, the doubles, the World Cup, the national championships, but certainly, you know, whatever, about five or ten years ago, you couldn't see something like that coming back now, because where on earth would you, uh, would you fit it into the mm. calendar? The Irish Championship came back, it was played at a place called the Red Cow. Yeah, Ireland's uh, most notorious traffic, yeah, chaos black spot. Exactly, yeah. and um, of course Alex Higgins uh, was invited to yeah. play in it, uh, which... Create quite a bit of interest. I think he played Fergal was my. He name. did, yeah. Um, and it was he, he, he wasn't in the best of temper, is what I recall. Um, especially when I asked to interview him, and he told me where to go. But um, yeah, but that was actually, I mean, that got huge press coverage. I, yeah. I'm not saying that just because I was responsible for most of it, but it, but it, it was like it proved that actually snooker, you know, and and maybe Irish snooker was still a big deal. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly that night, I think it was full, wasn't it, mm. when Fergal played Alex? I'm pretty sure that was the last tournament Alex Higgins ever played mm. in. I uh, certainly don't think he played in another one after that. And then Ken beat Fergal in the final. The thing about that was they'd had it at a club called the Spowell uh, in the suburb of Dublin, not actually far from that basketball arena where the yes. Irish Open had been played. And it had gone fairly well there. Um, but then they decided to try to make it into something bigger, moved it to that venue with the Red Cow, which isn't there anymore, I don't think. Um, and, of course, you know, you, you, okay, you're going to get a decent crowd for something like Alex Higgins. Uh, I think they got a half decent crowd maybe for the final, but other than that, you know, you're not going to get many people turning out for it. And uh, unfortunately, that then proved to be the end of the Irish Championship. But Ken won the last one; he beat Fergal nine two in the final. And I remember him saying afterwards that, you know, it might not seem like a big thing to the wider snooker world, but, you know, for the Irish players themselves, it was uh, certainly a big deal to be, uh, to be known as Irish champion. And uh, it had had other revivals as well. It was played in Cork, I think, in the in the. Uh, early to mid-90s for a while, but uh, I think that 2007 staging that we were at in the Red Cow will probably remain uh, the last uh, staging of, of, of the Irish Championship. Yeah, um, OK, so we move on now, again, sort of getting 80s, uh, getting, getting all 80s. Mm. Tournaments like the Mercantile Classic and the British Open, oh, yeah. they're, they're still talked about now, and, and, and st- I mean, in those days, you know, we talk about the majors now, and people think of the Triple Crown events, but actually, these were big tournaments as well, the Grand Prix on the BBC, British Open, like the International yeah. Mercantile Classic. These were, these were the bread and butter of the circuit, and, and they were big events. They really were. I know the mercantile always was great because it would generally start around New Year's Day, so you know, if you were of a certain age, you might still be on your school holidays. Mm. Uh, so fantastic to watch it. But I think we referred to this in one of the previous podcasts, the prominence that ITV used to give mm. to those tournaments. You know, they'd have a nighttime program straight after news at 10. Uh, they'd be there all Saturday afternoon and all Sunday afternoon, uh, most of it live from the final of those events. But the thing about it was, at that time, snooker as a big-time attraction was relatively new. Mm. So there had been very few really big snooker tournaments ever. Yes. So every tournament that came along seemed like a massive big deal. Mm. 
Um, and also, you knew them by the you knew them by their sponsors. Yeah, the, the Mercantile. I still to this day don't really know what Mercantile was, but mm. I, you know, you, it, you, it leaps out. You know, the Rothmans, you know, the Bensons, yeah. you know, the, the, the Embassy. They all kind of were identified by that, and also by venues. They usually were played in the same place, um, and also. Mercantile is an example, and there was Fidelity Unit Trusts yeah. sponsored the international, and there was another one, Britannia, MIM Britannia. MIM Britannia, British Open, yeah. These were not tobacco companies. No, absolutely, Everyone thinks everything yeah. was sponsored by tobacco. These were financial companies, yeah. the sort of companies we'd quite like now to be sponsored. Well, absolutely. So it proved that it wasn't all about fags in those days. The, uh, Dulux, as well, yeah, was the sponsor of the British yeah. Open. Um, the Fidelity Trophy, actually, was kind of like a plate, and they had... You know, the sort of graph you might see? Yes. Or, um, you know, if I don't know, yeah. sales or, yeah. you know, some business terms, yeah. something like that. The actually, FTSE. The FTSE, yeah, yeah let's, let's go for that. Then. <laughs> they had a graph going up and down across the front yeah. of, of the trophy. So it was certainly clear to everyone uh, what, what, what they did. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, big-time sponsors coming in at that time. I mean, now it tends to be all, well, pretty much is all, um, gambling companies. Uh, yeah. But everyone sort of wanted to get on board with it at that mm. time. And just every event, there was no such thing, really, as you know, a ranking event that wasn't right up there with the big ones. The World Championship obviously mm. stood out, the UK to some extent, but all the others were regarded as a massive deal. And if you won one of those, you became a big sporting celebrity, mm. certainly in Britain. I mean, Willie Thorne won the, yeah. the Mercantile, that was what made his name. Uh, Jimmy, it's not, sorry, Willie won the, uh, yes, it was the Mercantile, yeah, Willie yeah. won. And uh, Jimmy's first ranking title, I think, was the Mercantile mm. as well, wasn't it, in 86. Uh, so, yeah, very different times. Yeah. There were also tournaments where, and we spoke about this previously, sort of if you had CFAX, you only, you only knew about them, or you got them in the magazines like sort of six weeks later. Mm. In, in the summer, things like the New Zealand Masters, oh, the, yeah. the Australian Masters, they're always, always full of top players. But um, I, guess, I guess mysterious, I mean, actually now they are on YouTube. You can go back, you can look at some old Australian Masters and so on. But back then, you kind of, you know, you, it's not like now where you could just go on live scoring or something or yeah. probably watch it on streaming. Yeah. You, you, you would have to wait a while to find out what, what had gone on. Well, I actually remember, it's funny you should me you'd mention that, because the Australian Masters, that was the first tournament Stephen Hendry ever won. Yeah. I mean, he had won, I think, the Scottish Championship or whatever, but in terms of an international event. And he beat Mike Hallis in the final a few months before they won the World Doubles together. And I just remember, um, I didn't even know the tournament was on. I probably didn't even know it existed. And I remember being away somewhere, and I think my mum had a newspaper, and she spotted this yeah. thing and she said, did you know that some chap called Stephen Hendry has won some tournament called the Australian Masters? Mm. And this seemed like gold mm. to you know, be able to read a few paragraphs on snooker in yeah. July or whatever yeah. it was. The New Zealand Masters, well, Willie won that one as well, mm. didn't he? And I think Hendry won it too after um, I think he'd injured himself uh, and actually had to play one of his matches in the New Zealand Masters yeah. with his feet in a bucket That's of right, ice. Yeah. Didn't they play that in the New Zealand Houses of Parliament? Possibly. I think they did. Maybe, yeah. I think they did, yeah. one of the years. They must have been great trips for the players. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, I spoke to some about it, and they just sounded like... Because you'd have the, the, a quite a full season, it ends with the World Championship, you have a bit of time off, and then it's a bit like football, they go on tours in the summer. Yeah. That, that, this was like for the, for the top players' chance to go to Australia New Zealand. It must have been brilliant. Yeah, and uh, the matchroom players, they went to places like Malaysia, mm. Thailand, which was very much new ground, and in 87, they went and played a tournament in Beijing, which mm. was a huge deal at the time, and you know, I think that was probably the first... Well, in fact, definitely was mm. the first snooker tournament played over there. Actually, Willie Thorne won that one as well. Yeah, some well, this was, yeah well, they had the World Series, didn't they? They had uh, oh, yeah. Bar Barry and Ian Doyle, yeah. uh, who managed Hendry, sort of perfect coming together, the two big managers at the time, and they attended to brand all these little events. I mean, Barry was 
and still is a great innovator, but he would seek out these markets where no one had ever really seen snooker, but, but you know there was kind of possibly money to be made, and he got local TV and tried to sort of brand them together. Um, and again, it, it, it didn't impinge on the rest of the circuit. It was it was breaking new ground, which of course eventually the WPBC basically then piggybacked on. Yeah, yeah. Well, they launched it in '87, so basically the idea was there were going to be eight events. Uh, there was talk of having a U.S. Masters in Las Vegas. I mean, imagine the stories that would yeah. have come back from that event. It actually started off all right because they had a tournament in Tokyo. Uh, I remember Dennis Taylor winning that and being presented with some sort of samurai helmet or something. <laughs> um, there was a Hong Kong Masters, which I think was the first tournament ever to have a final between Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. Mm-hmm. Steve won that one. Then there was the Canadian Masters, which had actually been around for a couple of years, and that then became part of the World Series. And then it sort of got quietly forgotten about. And I know that it eventually uh, they realised, look, we're not going to be able to get a full eight events on. Mm-hmm. So they left it as it was. And they put out the statement to say that the World Series was being dropped for the year at, I think, 4.30 on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> so at the time, obviously, when yes. all the football results yeah. were coming in, so yeah. it was barely noticed. But then there were a few attempts were made to bring it back over the years. They just always found it very hard, and this is no criticism because it is very hard to do, to actually try to get six or eight events taking place mm-hmm. Um, you know, in places without maybe the biggest snooker tradition and actually make it all come together is very difficult. I remember once, actually, the uh, schedule appearing. One of the tournaments was called the 555 Challenge mm. and the venue was just listed as Europe. <laughs> so uh, and I don't think it ever got much more specific right. than that. I know they announced a French Masters in Toulouse. Right. And that never actually took place. Nice. But There's uh, plenty to lose there, then, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but look, it was an ambitious idea, and it was definitely worth trying, and they got some good tournaments out of it. If you look back, actually, at any of the old snooker scenes, you know, from about 20, 25 years ago, maybe even further back, you just go through, there are so many events yeah. that were going on. Top players would go and play in them for about three days, and the winner would get, like, £30,000. Mm. And nearly all of them were being put on by Barry. And it, yeah. ju- it just makes you think, if he'd been in charge of the game at that time, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, what may possibly yeah. have happened? Yeah. But there was a great variety of tournaments back then, and, um, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a great time, I guess, to, to be, you know, one of the top players who could go and capitalise mm. on, on playing in events like that, even though they never quite got to make it into a full-scale you know, credible World Series. The individual events were, were really good in themselves. Yeah, and there were things like the Belgian Masters. Yeah, uh, yeah. And of course, the Scottish Masters, I think, became part of the World it Series. It did. Yeah. But that yeah. was a, that was a, an established event. I mean, that that started in the early eighties. Yeah. The Lang Supreme, as it was, and then became the Regal Masters uh, uh, later on. Uh, what interesting about that tournament and the Belgian is that Mike Hallett won yeah. them both. So back to back, yeah. you know, beating top players. To, and, but this was in '91, yeah. a few months after the, the Masters defeat to Henry, yeah. which everyone sort of says ended his career. But actually, look at it. He then went and won two massive events. Yeah, I remember him saying afterwards, you know, he'd won a lot of money for those events, but he would love to be able to use it to buy some ranking points. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that was the season he actually ended up dropping out of the top mm. 16, having started it so well in that. But then, of course, you know, around that time, you know, as we were saying, you never got to see any of these events, but then the likes of screen sport and Euro sport, which I think <coughs> became the same thing eventually after a while, and Sky started showing some of these events. So it was great. I mean, you, 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 know, you, you were watching snooker on such a regular basis. And, of course, another thing that screen sport started was showing uh, the matchroom league, as it was yeah. then. They used to show live matches on, uh, on a Sunday lunchtime, mm. I think it was. And uh, the Continental Airlines, London Masters, mm. that was an extraordinary event because they had a field of eight and it was played in front of a dinner jacket yeah. audience. Um, and again, I think there was something like thirty or forty thousand pounds for the winner on the back of having played in three matches. And I think mm. that was shown live on Eurosport as well. So there was always something. There was always something going on. Mm. There weren't that many sort of big events going on around the world, but there were always invitation events, and the top players were actually kept 
you know, probably almost as busy as, as, yeah. as they are now. Final word on the Scottish Masters. It was the yeah. first it was first event shown on the internet. Uh, oh, yeah. Through TSN, which became Wanting Sport, and we uh, had a sort of little Wayne's World studio. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, the thing was then, it was unwatchable because no, there was no broadband or, or anything. It was all dial-up. So, basically, you know, just, just sort of two hours of buffering. But occasionally, for about 30 seconds, the picture <laughs> became clearer mm. and you could sort of watch it. Match Human League, let's just touch on that. I mean, yeah. that, that started... Not as a televised event. It started mm. basically in just around the country. And it was a good idea because it went to a lot of places that didn't have tournaments. I mean, I went to see Jimmy White play Neil Folds at Walsall Town Hall. You know, we had no snooker, but it was just down the road from me, so I went to see it. And they were pretty... Um, I think I've spoken about this before, but they were they were pretty sort of... Um, it wasn't like the sort of genteel TV yeah. snooker. You know, people yeah, got involved. Yeah. People had a yeah, tank yeah, and yeah. smoked, and it was a proper sort of environment. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that first year, actually, of the Matchroom League, it came down to Steve Davis and Neil Folds, who were probably the two best players at that time. And Steve had played all his matches, and Neil was playing Tony Mio, and Steve was basically waiting for a phone call. It was £50,000 for the winner, so it was a pretty big deal. So he was actually sitting at home waiting, and then he heard that his doubles partner, Tony Mio, had won the last frame of the match and had stopped Neil winning the match from league. Um, it was a straight league format then, actually, and then they started introducing playoffs into mm. it, which again ended up being shown live on, on television. And um, they, they did something I've never seen before or since when they showed the match from league playoffs. They had two tables, actually, see so the two semi finals going on. And then the next day, of the final on one table and the third place playoff on the other, and they actually jumped between the tables, right, in the middle of a frame. So I think the final was Henry and Davis. They'd be showing that, and it'd be like, so Stephen Henry on a good break there. Let's just see what's happening in the third right. place playoff. So uh, I definitely have never seen that uh, anywhere else. There's one other event actually I want to mention, um, and people in Ireland will remember this, and it grew out of the Irish Masters. And I can't even tell you what it was called because the name changed about four times. It started, I think, as the Carlsberg Challenge. Mm. Then it became the Carling Champions. Then it became the Foster's Professional. It was a four-man event that was played right at the start of the season. Uh, it was usually really big names playing in it. And it used to get absolutely colossal television audiences. I think there was one match. I think it was Jimmy White against Tony Knowles. 25% of the entire Irish population, mm. not even just the audience, but 25% of the entire Irish population, were watching us. So that was always a real treat to have because it was played in early September and if you lived in Ireland and watched it in RT it was the first tournament you would have seen mm. since the World Championship. It finished actually in 88 and again Mike Hallett is still the holder of it right. because he, he was the last ever winner of it. Yeah, it's a bit of a pattern for Mike because he also yeah. won the Hong Kong Open didn't he? That's and then right, never, yeah. never played again. Yeah, Darren yeah. Morgan actually, actually we'll end with this because it brings them both together Darren and Mike. Yeah. The, the one frame shootout now of course oh, the yeah. shootout has come back now and well, we will gloss over what mm. we think of that. But in no, it, this was like a very simple idea. Again, non, non-televised, but bring everyone together for three or four days. I think it was in Stoke on it Trent, was, yeah. Trent and Gons. And play one-frame shootout. Very simple, you know, FA Cup draw, whatever. But, of course, famously, they made the final best of three. Yeah. And it's called the one-frame shootout. I know, I know, so I know. why why that happened, I don't know. That was the, yeah, that was the final, wasn't it? It was yeah. Darren against yeah. Mike, wasn't it? I think uh, McManus, who had just turned pro, played Stephen Hendry. And he certainly beat him, and I don't think Henry potted a ball. Now, Henry would have been the one person who probably would have come away feeling, you know, yeah. affronted yeah. by that. Uh, but again, that was never played again afterwards, mm. and uh, well, until many years later when mm. it came back, obviously, in a different form. So there were all sorts of things back then. There was a World Seniors around that time as well, mm. and it took so long for the World Seniors to be played again that by the time it was staged the next time, both the holder and the man he beaten in the final had died in the meantime. Yes. So it took 19 years to, uh, yeah. to, to, to get it back on. 
Well, uh, I, I see this as sort of a hidden history of snooker, <laughs> but if you go on Q-Tracker or something, all these tournaments are there, and you can look back at the, the various winners, and it's all contributed to, I guess, where we are now. Certainly Barry's influence is, is key a lot across a lot of these yeah. tournaments. You know, he's, he's, he's over all of it, isn't he? Yeah. Least, all the successful ones, anyway. Yeah, indeed. indeed. <laughs> I mean, he was always willing to try things. I mean, yeah. We spoke in a previous podcast about the World Masters, so we don't need to go into that again. But, I mean, what ambition he showed mm. to have that, and, you know, if there had been a bit more of that ambition in the game things might have been very different at that time. But even now, you know, we're sitting in a championship league. I mean, that was, you know, an idea that was developed, you know, with Barry largely at the helm of that. So, uh, you know, I know some people have criticised him for a number of things over the years, but I think, no doubt about it, snooker, as you know, has become clear from this conversation, would have been a lot poorer without him. And a lot of events would probably never have seen the light of day. Yeah. OK, well, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back with something else later on, <laughs> or maybe next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.